and I won't have a guest this week, but we decided that we had enough to talk about that we wanted to get together and uh, talk about some current events briefly first, but also uh, to talk about the weird world of prescription clauses, which I have to say I had not given a lot of thought to uh, until about six months ago. Uh, and which are the source now of all kinds of weird drama in Venezuela in particular. So, um, hey, me too. How are you doing? Hey, Mark. I'm <laughs> so looking forward to our session today where we just get to talk ourselves and pretend to be the experts. Without these stupid guests who can make us look bad by <laughs> telling us stuff that we should know. But speaking of stupid experts who know things that we don't know, the IMF had a report that was released today that was that was supposed to be kind of a big deal i had thought in terms of how it was billed um did you get a chance to look at it i did and i you know th there was all this drama surrounding its release which worked uh, at least in terms of making me sort of eagerly read the first copy that i got and there are a couple of interesting things about it that I want to flag, and I'm curious about what you think about it, since I was, shall we say, underwhelmed. So the first thing that I, let's start with the positive. The positive is that they think that the future is very bleak. So <laughs> they're being realistic. They're not giving us bullshit about how coronavirus has been cured and we're on the upswing and the real economy is coming back. You know, stuff that we might have heard uh, from other sources. No, I think the IMF is keeping it real in that they, they seem to be very clear in the report that came out today that we are potentially on the brink of another sudden stop, such as the one we saw in March of 2020. And if that happens, the world economy might not recover very quickly because the real economy has really taken a beating. And so they are worried. So that part was good. I, I want some realism about what the hell is going on and realism from experts who are the ones who are going to try to help us through this. The part that I was completely underwhelmed by has to do with the solutions that they had. I mean, this, this report must have taken months to produce. We've had since March of 2020 to try and prepare. And the stuff that they put in here, I was like, come on, guys. I really hope that they have their secret weapons and this is all that they're telling us for public relations perspectives. But what did you think? I mean, I don't want to go into the details of the silliness that they, they have uh, proposed uh, yet. Uh, maybe you think they did a fabulous job. No, I mean, this was more or less my impression. I guess I, I'm doubting that they have secret weapons up their sleeve, though maybe they're a little reluctant to share their kind of dire contingency planning. But, you know, the thing that was... Uh, that really struck me as it was more of the same incremental contract reform, you know, polish up your collective action clauses, uh, add them to a somewhat wider range of contracts. And that's all very nice. It's and not 30 even years nice. From now, it, 30 it's years from now, it, nice. might, it might do something. 
No, it's not even nice. I mean, what they should have been taught, if they talked about collective action clauses, right? Like, come on, this is such a broken old record. Oh, we have a global financial crisis. We're going to improve collective action clauses again. When they didn't even work the last time around and were sort of a bullshit fix in the first place. And everybody knows that. And so if all you can come to the table with is, oh, you should improve improve your collective action clauses, and it's not even improve the collective action clauses. What they're saying is, oh, more of your instruments should contain them. Like your sub-sovereign debt should contain them, your guarantee, guarantee yeah, should yeah. contain them. Like we have been saying that and we have known that for well over a decade. I mean, this stuff blew up with Greece in 2012 and people have been talking about that ever since then, including the fund. So. Anybody who knows anything about this market, I think, is going to say, you know, this use collective action clauses, come on, can't you get anything better? Or I think they have like, we should have more transparency to have intercreditor coordination. Really? Like, that's your solution to a potential global crisis? More transparency and that will solve everything? Or, you know, sort of improving the process of getting relief for bilaterals? I gotta say, no, 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 this, this is not enough. We, we need more. I mean, why not? So why not say no more official sector relief for poor countries unless the private creditors chip in? And we don't care how they figure out how they're going to coordinate, but they need to chip in before taxpayer money is used to do the global bailout. That's, yeah. that's what I wanted them to say, at least. Fair point. Fair point. Um, yeah, I was a little disappointed that the big ideas were things like more anti-holdout legislation, which I I kind of think those statutes are silly anyway, but um, they're also not going to happen. And so, or maybe, you know, some tiny podunk country will adopt one and we can talk about how that doesn't matter. Oh, but um New York is not going to have one. The UK is not going to have one beyond the little one that it already has, which isn't really going to do anything here. So anyway. <laughs> but can we, like, before we get to prescription clauses, I'm sort of curious about uh, your thoughts on Zambia, because it, it, you know, it's also tanking. That's the latest country to have problems. And Joseph Coderell, when he was on our podcast, told us that, Zambia was going to be bad. I think I didn't anticipate uh, or fully uh, or carefully enough listen to him, which is a lesson I should have learned a long time ago, which is always listen to the details of what Joseph says. But it seems like this thing is playing out in a very interesting way in that the private creditors, A, and this connects to what Anna Zimansky said, private creditors already have a blocking position. Mm -hmm. No problem. Like this is like yep. coming up with blocking positions seems to be completely trivial for them right now. And they are saying no deal unless you assure us that China. The Chinese, yep. Yeah. And that, mm -hmm. this is huge, right? Like they're, they're putting pressure on China, which I'm like, wow, you guys are brave. But I wonder whether this is going to be, if, we have a slew of poor countries go into default state, which seems quite likely. And so many of them have large debts to China. 
are the private creditors really going to be able to get the details on how much relief China is willing to give? I, I mean, this just is, this is a world we have not seen yet, but sure going to be interesting for us to look at. Yeah, and I don't, I, I don't have a ton to add to that other than this is in some respects likely to be a test case for something we're going to see recurring. The poorer countries in particular are going to have small enough debt stocks with small enough issuances that it'll be easy to get a blocking position. You have massive amounts of money but in, lent by China, but in, in um, you know, instruments and in amounts that nobody has a, a very clear sense of. And you're going to, it's, it's a much different and much more challenging coordination problem, I think, than we have seen in the past when you just got to deal with the IMF, right? I mean, the, the official debt problem for Argentina is an extraordinarily simple one in some respects compared to all these countries whose primary lender is China. Yeah, so we'll see. This is a new world. Uh, we'll have to start preparing to figure out how to teach our course next term. This is, this, this is a world we have uh, not anticipated maybe uh, fully, but I, I guess that's a silver lining in that we'll learn more. And but, we can make our students dig up information that we are too obtuse to find ourselves. <laughs> Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, so the one last thing that, you know, I, I know we don't want to go back to Argentina quite so quickly, but at least I want to put it on the table for us to potentially discuss in the future. And that's the question of the Argentine provinces. If all of the focus has been on the sovereign doing its restructuring, but there are all these provinces that issued significant amounts of debt, uh, especially when you put it together. But the provinces, their debt instruments are not tied together by any sort of aggregation clauses. Mm -hmm. So just like in Zambia, I imagine that funds like Ashmore find it fairly easy to have blocking positions. And we already saw this with the province of Buenos Aires. And that means that they are potentially going to be able to extract this better recoveries, right? That's right. And, you know, I feel a little, um, while I shared your views about the IMF report, uh, for the most part, you know, I'm a little more sympathetic to the transparency parts, not as a solution to COVID or as a, even a medium term um, meaningful improvement in debt markets. But, you know, it's hard to expect there to be any kind of coordinated plan for restructuring provincial debt or guaranteed debt more broadly if no one knows where the hell this stuff is and how much of it there is. So that's, that's a worthwhile goal for sure. It's not going to do us anything in the short term. But so. You know, and now let me be a little fairer. Is is I think is the deeper issue here is that we should not be dependent on the IMF for solving the globe's problems in terms of how to do sovereign restructuring. That's that's not their job. That's not what they do. And you know, they have a small team of people, and many of them are spending all of their time putting out fires in places like Lebanon and Argentina and dealing with Venezuela, and there's not the bandwidth 
I mean, it's hard for me to imagine how there could be for them to be also devising ways in which you solve all of the globe's problems. And, you know, when Ann Kruger was there and was doing SDRM, I suspect they were burning the midnight oil and this was extra stuff that they were doing. And to expect them to be producing these kinds of solutions at such a fast pace is just not a plausible ask. And I think the countries around the globe and their finance ministries and other institutions need to be putting their shoulder to the wheel if we are going to come out of this in, in one piece, which, you know, you know, I'm a pessimist, but uh, so I, I take back all of my criticisms. It, it, it is not fair uh, to criticize them. They're, they're doing the best they can and they're working around the clock. Indeed. I was wrong. It's normal for me to figure that out. But do we get to talk about prescription clauses now? Yeah, to the, to the extent we know what the hell they are, which I'm, I think okay. maybe that's, that's the point of the thing is I don't know what they are. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start with a, a little bit of my background on how I came to this. And then uh, since you are the ones, one who educated me on this, uh, you can tell the story from there. But for me, I had not even heard of these prescription clauses. Maybe that should be embarrassing uh, since this is a field that I have worked on for many, many years until January of this year when uh, a very good uh, reporter from Bloomberg, Ben Bartenstein, called me because he had, if memory serves, he had heard from some investors uh, that they were worried about prescription clauses. I was like, what the hell are these prescription clauses? So I looked it up and he said that they were saying that these prescription clauses were contractual modifications of the statute of limitations. This just, this sounded completely bizarre. So my first response to Ben, I think, was to say that that just sounds wrong. Statute of limitations set by the state in whatever jurisdiction. And so you can't really contract around that. That statute of limitations is set because of the, the state's interest in efficiency and not clogging up its court system. But then I went and looked. I think I looked at Mexico's prescription clause first, just did a search for prescription. And this shows up. And it literally says if you don't bring your claim, I think that the it was five years. If you don't bring your claim in five years, it's void. V-O-I-D, void. And I was stunned because statute of limitations and a New York law contracts case is six years. And here they were saying the claim is void in five years, which seemed uh, stunning. And uh, Ben said that he had been told that in Venezuela for interest payments, the time period was three years. And so that seemed a even shorter and well it was shorter uh, although later it turned out to be it might be longer but a pretty big deal for investors to be aware of so that was my background to the story and then this kind of blows up in multiple different ways well it does and especially in in venezuela where depending on who you view as the government one is like yeah these clauses are they're gonna truncate your claims starting next month, basically, but don't worry, we'll waive them. And, and the other government is, the interim government is like, what the hell are you talking about? The 
clauses are, yes, they're in the contract. They don't really have anything to do with the statute of limitations and they're not going to run until hell freezes over in any event. The, what I, the thing I have come to understand or the way I have uh, come to understand this, uh, and then maybe we'll take our break to, to talk about this when we come back, is that there's two, at least two different kinds of protection, but neither of them really have anything to do with the statute of limitations. And weirdly, sometimes they're, to the extent they're in the contracts at all, sometimes they're separated and sometimes they're combined in one clause in really confusing ways. Um, and Venezuela's uh, clause is especially confusing in that it, um, well, for, for um, reasons we'll talk about in just a second. But there's the, there's the idea that you want to protect the payment agent so that if it gets some money, but uh, investors don't show up to claim it, it's only got to wait some defined period of time, and then it can send the money back to the government and it's out of the picture. It doesn't have to worry about investors coming and demanding uh, money from it. And so there's a, a provision I found in, in just because I was looking for it the other day in Venezuela's bonds, and that's a two-year window for the, the fiscal agent. But then the second function is kind of like the statute of limitations, but not. And it's this, the, the claim becomes void if not uh, asserted within a certain period. And it's three years of some unclear date for Venezuela, basically three years from never, uh, the way the clause is written, or for interest payments, or 10 years from never for principal payments. And that's the part maybe we'll talk about when we come back. It's not the statute of limitations, but it's like an outer bar, as far as I can tell, uh, on when claims can be asserted. So l l let me just recap, just so we get, we're clear. For some countries, this seems to be, this prescriptions clause seems to make, seems to kill the claim if it's after a certain period of so whether Mexico pays its debts or not, after five years, you have no claim against them. So they could just stop paying their debts to everyone, wait five years, and then they have no debts anymore, which is truly remarkable if that's what the clause actually says. And it's especially remarkable for a clause that nobody seems to know very much about. All right, so that, that's step one. But then we go step two to the Venezuelan type clause. And that is not clear at all. That seems to, if you read just the first couple of sentences, seems to be like the Mexican clause. But then if you keep reading, it doesn't seem to be cutting the period of time. It seems to be extending the period of time. But it's not clear where it is extending the period of time to or even whether it can extend the period of time. So this is, this, the Venezuelan thing is particularly confusing. And then to add confusion on top of confusion, almost everybody I talked to about this initially, including fancy sovereign debt lawyers, seem to think this was about the statute of limitations. I think in the second half, we're going to talk about how it is not about the statute of limitations at all. That's right. But we'll take a break Let's now. Let's take a break. And go into the further confusion. set it up relatively uh, nicely and uh, elegantly at the start of or the ending of our first half. So let me try not to confuse things too terribly much. But as I understand the way the clause works. So first of all, 
you as an investor can always... So we're talking about the Venezuelan clause. Yeah, we're talking about the Venezuelan clause. An investor can always sort of stop the clock by just making a presentation, presenting their claim for payment. We don't actually know what that means, but it's not like um, some some cliff that you fall off. You can prevent yourself from falling off the cliff. The reason I don't think it's like the statute of limitations is it does something different. The, the statute, as, as you were saying, is a, you know, it's a bar to bringing claims. And while you can't contract around it up front, you can always extend it if you want after the fact. I mean, you could just waive the defense or, or pay the issuer to waive the defense. Not that anyone would do that, but it's um, all the statute of limitations does is it puts this removable barrier in front of filing a lawsuit. Whereas these clauses seem to say in the use of the word void that uh, after this prescription period runs, there is no claim that can be asserted under any circumstances. And the way they seem to work is to, the intent seems to be to have an outer limit past which the government has absolute certainty that unless somebody has presented a claim for payment, that claim is gone. And I, I, I can understand that in concept, but Venezuela's clause is very confusing for at least three reasons. One is the period doesn't start to run by the terms of the clause until the fiscal agent has been paid. So that means basically for principal payments, you've got 10 years after never, uh, if you assume that the government is never going to pay that principal. That's, that's sort of a weird way for the prescription clause to function. So that's weirdness one. Weirdness two is I can't find the damn clause anywhere in the fiscal agency <laughs> agreement. I see it in the prospectus, so fine, but that, that's not really the contract. I mean, investors can rely on it to some extent, but I, you know, I looked in the fiscal agency agreement and I don't see it there. I see the two-year protection for the fiscal agent, but I don't see the clause. And then the third thing is my understanding uh, from a helpful commenter on the, the little credit slips post you and I just did is that this is really stating a rule of Venezuelan law. So if it's not in the contract, and it's really just a rule of Venezuelan law, I don't know that we need to care about it in a New York law bond at all. Oh, my goodness. Uh, all right. So th th that was very clear and very helpful. I, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to ask you questions about this, but simple questions. So let's, let's start first with the part about how the time doesn't begin to run until the money is with the fiscal agent. And if I read the clause correctly, it's, which is not certain at all, because I've been reading these clauses incorrectly, I think, since I was one of those who thought that this was a statute of limitations constraint for, a lot, for the longest time. So it seems to be money has to get to the fiscal agent, then the fiscal agent gives notice to the creditors, and then the clock starts. Now, this doesn't mean that the creditors get the money. Uh, if I understand how fiscal agents work, fiscal agents are agents of the issuer. So that means, in theory at least, the issuer can send the money to the fiscal agent. The fiscal agent can give notice, I got the money. And then the issuer can say, send us back the money, you're our agent. And the fiscal agent would be obligated to send the money back to the issuer since they're their agent. And then the clock would start running. So this is not at all 
like a statute of limitations. And the fact that this is all a function of the fiscal agent giving notice, it's not that the fiscal agent pays the money to the bondholders or is preparing to pay or is contractually obligated to pay yet. It seems very strange that it's triggered on the notice. So I'm, I'm sure I'm missing something. Maybe the, the fiscal agent, once the fiscal agent gets the money, is somehow contractually obligated to the bondholders to actually make the payments, but then, then it would be to. I have to go back and look at the fiscal agency agreement. I, remember, I seem to recall there being something in there where it is under instructions to put the money in trust for the bondholders. I could be wrong about that. But I guess the point is just that we need some period of time where we can impute to the bondholders awareness that like the money exists and is uh, ready to be paid independent of what the, the fiscal agent's duties might, uh, might ultimately be so, so that they're kind of on notice, right? Yeah, but let, let's, let's say we have a rogue fiscal agent and the fiscal agent just gives notice to everybody that I've gotten the money. And then, then the, time, the clock starts running because all that the contract seems to require is notice. I guess we should go back and read it, but it, it, this is already messy, but I wanna to get to the next question that you raised. So the next question that you raised is that this language doesn't seem to appear in the fiscal agency agreement. So you have language in the prospectuses, the prospectus supplements sometimes that purports to be contractual language but then when you look at the contract, we can't find it. Now, you know, having done enough of these transactions, or at least looked at enough of these, I mean, there's so many documents. So maybe there is some other document where the provisions are hiding, but we can't find it. And so let's assume for purposes of discussion that the prescription clause doesn't exist in the contract. Well, then it's then it's just useless, right? It's just puffery. Does it have any <laughs> if it's not there? And then we can get to this, the local law aspect of it. But let's just, if we're just that the fiscal agency agreement does not have this important contractual protection then, uh, or, or contractual provision, I guess it, it's, it could be a protection, it could be a, a penalty, then, why are we even talking about it? So we're assuming both that the clause is not in the fiscal agency agreement and we're ignoring the fact that this rule, this prescription rule is in Venezuelan law. So yeah, let's we're get just asking the about the Because that's a third level of complexity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, so it's easy for me to imagine situations when there is something investor protective in the prospectus that is not in the fiscal agency agreement. And it's easy for me to imagine how an investor could say at some later point, you know, you don't even make the fiscal agency agreement uh, available. It's almost impossible to find. I rely on the prospectus. And so I have the protection that I was promised in the prospectus, even though it's not there in the contract. That is, that's a tough argument for an investor to win on, but it makes you know, it's not implausible. But here, this is something that takes away investor rights that's disclosed in the prospectus, but maybe doesn't exist at all. I, I can't think offhand of a case where a court's given meaning to language like that. And 
you know, maybe we should just give up the pretense that these are contracts. And we should say, look, it's a, it's a legally enforceable sales document, and we can throw out all the underlying documentation and just write prospectuses from now on. Well, we certainly have to pay lawyers less, which would be a good thing, because this whole thing seems like this is not the first time we've discovered that, you know, things that people think are their contracts turn out not to be their contracts when you look at the underlying actual contracts, which often nobody has looked at for decades. People can't even find them. It's only when we have some kind of dispute that everybody's running around chasing that one copy of the original contract that is sitting in often in some office in Luxembourg where they're requiring you to show up in person. It, I mean, it, this, the whole thing is a completely loony, but Venezuela seems to take it to a whole different level. Like, it is like there, it's not that the provision says something different in the fiscal agency agreement than it does in the prospectus, which we have seen in the Venezuelan context. Here, we can't even find it. There are at least two examples that I'm not going to make more specific, but that you and I both know where there were really um, interesting, weird things going on contractually in the prospectus that everyone got all excited about. Sometimes the issuers even asked their lawyer, like, hey, how did they get there? And they got an explanation. And then eventually it turned out that they weren't there at all. It was just a, like a prospectus writer's scrivener's error because when you dug up the underlying contract, the, the clause was there, but the rights it gave were very different from those described in the prospectus. Let's, let's now talk about the third source of confusion here, which is the applicable law. And I, I feel like we should, I want to reiterate why this has come back up in October after the initial brouhaha in January after Ben wrote his piece. Because so to add background, Ben writes his piece in late January saying, you know, investors might need to worry that this prescription clause that nobody really pays that much attention to might impose a three-year limitation on interest claims. And there's lots of drama. The investor side, their lawyers jump up and down saying, no, 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 it doesn't reduce. It actually increases or whatever. They're, they're jumping up and down. And so Ben's piece has a, has a he said, she said articulation of this and seems like it's the end of the story. And then we come to September and all of a sudden we have the Maduro government who we haven't really heard from in the debt restructuring context in a long while, say to investors, look, three years is coming up. You might want to do a deal with us. We'll agree to stop the, the expiration of your claims uh, in exchange for your agreeing not to torture us in the courts by bringing all these litigation actions. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like, shit. So <laughs> really a three-year limitation? Or is it not a three-year limitation? And so we're back to reading these utterly confusing clause that might not actually be a clause. So I just wanted to provide that with context and to add kerosene to this fire, the Guaido team responds a few weeks later to the Maduro assertion and says, no, no, the Maduro people are misreading their own contract clause. We read it completely differently that there, there is no expiration going on. So here we have sort of two claimants to the Venezuelan government, both are articulating completely different versions of their own clause that might not actually be a clause. So, all right, 
I, I wanted to, to set the drama again. And of course, you and I are getting all these emails and calls from people in the market saying, can we talk about prescription clauses? And I don't want to talk to them because I have to tell them I don't have a clue. I don't know. I don't know. Leave me alone. <laughs> yes. Um, but le now let's talk about the applicable law. So this provision for Venezuela has the language in it. And now I'm just speaking from memory since I haven't pulled up the clause on my screen. It has the language of in, in it saying subject to applicable law. Now, whenever I see subject to applicable law in a contract provision, uh, I break out into hives. Because what law? Subject, what does it mean to say this provision is subject to applicable law without telling me what the applicable law is? Is the applicable law the domestic law of Venezuela? Is the applicable law the law of New York that governs the contract? Is it the law of some other jurisdiction? But here, it just seemed completely irrelevant until we got that comment on the blog post and you were able to make more sense of it than I am, but I'm, I'm hoping you'll explain this third wrinkle on this totally bizarre prescription clause for Venezuela. Oh no, that's not a simple question and I can't explain that at all. In fact, I, I'm not even sure I'm gonna try, although I will say it, to some extent it, it, in some prescription clauses we've seen, it's even worse. I want to say Argentina is an example, though it's, um, it's skipping my, uh, it's, it's, um, uh, uh, my brain is skipping over it right now. But some of them seem to make clear that it, the, the issuer's own law can change the prescription period, which is especially weird in what is supposed to be a foreign law bond. Here, the thing that I find confusing, you can imagine how whatever law governs the instrument, let's call it New York law, uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but might have some limits on the government's ability to cut off investors uh, a right to bring claims. And, and so maybe that's the intent of this applicable law provision, but it's not super clear at all. The question I, I thought you were gonna ask and that I've been sort of noodling over is whether in some fashion under New York's conflict rules, this prescription period, which exists as a matter of Venezuelan statutory law, might actually be relevant. On the other hand, you could say, well, no, you've got a New York law clause, so who cares about what Venezuelan statutory law says? But I that think- That is uh, what I meant to ask. And I had thought, it, it, obviously incorrectly again, that this language in the clause itself would help connect to the conflicts discussion. But I think it, it just confuse, confuses it more. Yeah, it, it does. But I mean, so the conflicts issue, I think, is that in a lot of states, and I, I think New York is one of them, the governing law clause doesn't incorporate procedural law. And weirdly, to some people, the statute of limitations is considered to be procedural law. And so you identify the statute of limitations through conflicts rules. And normally those rules are gonna to point to, to New York uh, in, in a, a, a issuance like this. But here you've got this rule of Venezuelan law that's not really a statutory rule. 
So is it displaced altogether by the choice of New York law as the, the law that governs the instrument? Like, especially if the clause is not in the contract, then it would only become relevant if it somehow snuck in, uh, notwithstanding the, the governing law clause's designation of New York law. Uh, and I don't think the answer to that question is at all clear. No, it's not at all clear. I mean, the, the, the comment on, the pod, uh, on our um, blog post was really interesting in that, you know, you have this thing that where you potentially don't have it in the contract, but you have it in the prospectus. And that at first I thought, oh, that's just a goof. The lawyers just didn't put it in. So then it's out. But once it was pointed out to us that this, this language actually might not have been taken from the contract. Instead, what the prospectus might be reporting is something from Venezuelan domestic law which we should add is actually, it imposes a totally different prescription period because yes. the, the yes. one in the Venezuelan law doesn't level. run. Yeah. doesn't run from when the fiscal agent gets the money. It runs from when the payment is due. So to make matters worse, if this is what's going on, then it is misdescribed in the prospectus. Yes, yes. So, but does that, then the question is, does that all boil down to this being a matter of Venezuelan law? and not a matter of the contract, which if that is the bottom line, which sort of, I find that hard to be the conclusion I would, that one would get to, this is far messier and complicated than any of us thought at the start, but the lawyers who are litigating these various disputes for Venezuela, there are so many in the courts, uh, they must be loving it because uh, I can just hear, see the billable hours uh, increase. Yeah, I, I mean, as yeah. soon as we get into conflicts world, just, that, that's just, you know, it's such quicksand. But to, to my mind, uh, there are... There bad, are... bad contracts and bad documents and confusing rules. And to my mind, I was going to say there's sort of two ways this could play out that seem plausible to me. One is it's not in the contracts. Maybe at some point somebody pointed out to the lawyers drafting the prospectus, hey, there's this rule of Venezuelan law. And so they started putting it in the prospectus, but it never <laughs> made its way into the fiscal agency agreement, which was you know, dated back from 2001. So then the only way this would be relevant is if it's somehow applied notwithstanding the governing law clause in New York and notwithstanding the fact that the payment is through New York and all of that. And I think the answer there would be that who cares about it? It's just, um, it's part of Venezuelan law, but it doesn't matter here. But the other thing, the, the other possibility is that it's there in the fiscal agency agreement. We can't find it, but that's because we're doofuses. And the fiscal agency agreement says what the prospectus describes it to say, in which case the clause is kind of irrelevant because the money's not there. The fiscal agent hasn't got the money and hell is going to freeze over twice before we get to the, the end of the prescription period. Does that sound about right? That sounds about right. You know, I think what the end result of this podcast is going to be is assuming any of our creditor friends listen to it, is that they will never, ever call us again. To but ask that's what about, we want, right? Ask about any question about any of this stuff. But I'm, I'm going to ask you one last question before we wrap up. And 
Th thank you for indulging me in all the questions. You're really the person who, who knows about this, or at least thinks about this in a more coherent way than anybody else. So I was looking at some of the data because after Ben's uh, article and the brouhaha with people uh, having food fights over what this actually means, something I still don't understand, there seems to be a significant difference in these prescription clauses in bonds issued under English law versus bonds issued under New York law. And here's my rough cut in what I'm seeing. The ones under English law seem to be pretty uniform. They seem to be all a coherent version of the Venezuelan provision. Uh, they, like you can actually understand them. They have a fixed period. They, they all have the identical uh, fixed period and they seem to work in a predictable fashion. Whereas in the bonds under New York law, they're, they're all over the place. There's lots of variation. Some are the English style, some are English style plus incoherence. Some are Mexico style, where they're just making stuff void after a, sh a short period of time. But there is a lot more variation. I mean, there is variation in New York, and in England, there's almost no variation. To add to that, when we have talked to our lawyer friends in England, they have told us, you know, prescription clauses, they're kind of straightforward. They're really sort of a, a procedural thing. Uh, and I think one of the stories we were told that this is just uh, for the convenience of the fiscal agent. Whereas, and, the, and the listing requirement, right? Yes, that's right. It was a listing requirement. Yes, it was truly useless given how useless listing is. But in New York, A, people told us it was about the statute of limitations. B, people told us they didn't really know about how it was working. And C, there's no uniformity. And so I, I didn't know if you had, uh, whether this sort of adds any insight for us or adds confusion. Well, I think you know the answer to that. It adds, <laughs> adds confusion. But <laughs> as an example, I uh, pulled up the Argentine clause to check my recollection. And it is, until the last seven words, it is a model of coherence. Um, except that it says claims will be prescribed. And I don't really know what that means. Is that like the statute of limitations? Like you're not supposed to bring them or is that like, no, they're void? I don't know. But in other respects- As opposed to prescribed. <laughs> in, other, in other respects, it's totally coherent until the last seven words, which are, or a shorter period, actually this is more than seven words, but you'll get the point, or a shorter period if provided by Argentine law. And I'm like, what the hell? So yeah, can, like, leaving no, retroactivity no limits aside, like so they can just change it. That great. That's a really useful functional clause. Yeah, and you know, there, there is a sort of a deeper question about contract interpretation that maybe we'll come to later someday, I, I, but I have to ask it because it keeps bugging me. So when we have these provisions that nobody really seems to remember where they came from, seems to understand, but they're in pretty much every deal, does one just try to read the language of the individual clause, which of course gives one a splitting headache, or do you try to look to sort of industry practices and see what the industry is trying to do 
and then give meaning to the individual clause. And this, you know, I'm inclined more and more to think that you should look to the industry practice and there's no hope to make any sense of a, the individual clause for countries like Venezuela or Argentina, because they themselves don't know what they were doing and their documents don't tell you what you're doing. But given that I'm teaching contract law, I probably shouldn't be saying this since this is the opposite of what we teach in contract. No, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I, what I hear you to be saying is that, you know, in effect, trade custom, trade understanding of what the clause is supposed to do is should be a guide to meaning. And that's consistent with contract law. I mean, I think even kind of textualist jurisdictions like New York are pretty receptive if you have objectively provable evidence of meaning like trade custom. And if, you know, if people have a, an understanding of what the, the clause is supposed to do, then that can solve the problem. The, pro- the bigger issue, I think, is that no one knows what the hell the clause is doing. <laughs> and so then you've got no clues to meaning. Um, yeah, other than maybe some text, which, as you say, gives me a splitting headache anyway. But that's, I don't have any more insight to share, and I've already shared sort of negative insights. So maybe we should call it at that. This, this was great. This was about contract clauses and interpretation and how confusing it can be, how difficult it can be when you're talking about standard form contracts that are not standard <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but everybody thinks they're standard. But that's what makes our world fun for at least us. But next week, we should have Patrick Bolton and Ugo Panizza to talk about where the world is uh, going. So thanks a lot, Mark, for indulging me and teaching me about prescription clauses. And thank you, Liana, for doing your magic as our producer week in and week out. We are so grateful. Yes, Liana. And me too. Um, I don't know what I taught you, but I'm worried if I taught you anything. But we'll talk. We'll talk. Off.